Good morning, everyone. Let's uh, go ahead and get started. Glad that you're here today as we begin our day together with our Sunday school hour. Let's pray. Father, we thank you very much for your great love and grace. We thank you for saving us, for giving us life, for filling us with yourself, for giving us hope, for giving us the, um, the change in life through the Holy Spirit that enables us to have a new vision and a new outlook and, and to deal with life in a different way. We thank you for the security that we have. We thank you for your continual walking with us, teaching us, guiding us, leading us. And Father, we thank you for this church. We thank you that you have established it and that you have sustained it, that you um, are the one that is leading us and guiding us. And Father, we just pray this morning as we gather together as a church that your blessing would be upon us and that our hearts would be towards you. Pray for our teachers as they teach the Word of God this morning. Father, we just pray that um, your spirit would go before them and that you would prepare hearts Father, that the word would go out and be received with gladness and joy and with enthusiasm, with a commitment and a dedication, that we would say, yep, I want to I be there. I want to do that. I, I want to apply. I want to practice. I want to be transformed. Father, we just uh, we ask that you would do that in our lives. Thank you again very much for the things that are before us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We find ourselves in... Ezra this morning, the book of Ezra, as we continue along with um, the Gospel Project, and last week we were in Nehemiah, we're going to be in Nehemiah again here real quick, but we're going to talk about Ezra this morning, so turning your Bibles to the book of Ezra, and we're going to wander through a little bit of this to kind of catch up and to get where we need to be this morning as we talk about a pretty exciting portion of Scripture um, in the book of Nehemiah. So in Ezra, the book of Ezra is all about folks going back to Jerusalem, all right? And um, we read that a group went back with Ezra, a group went back with Nehemiah. Ezra went back, and they began to rebuild the temple. And then Nehemiah went back, and they rebuilt the walls. And so what we see in Ezra and Nehemiah is we see that life is beginning to pick up again in Jerusalem, that Israel is going back after being in captivity and they're going back to establish their identity again, their life again, and we see that take place in these two books. So Ezra chapter 1, and as I said, we're going to wander through this a little bit. It says in chapter 1, verse 1, in the, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a, pro, a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying... Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord and the God of, is, of, uh, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with the free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So the king said, go back to Jerusalem. All you Jews, go ahead and go back and, uh, and start doing what you, you need to do here. Verse 5, Then the heads of the fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, cattle, and valuables, aside from all that was given as a free will offering. 
And also King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Methredath, uh, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Now this was their number, 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of a second kind, 1,000 other articles. And the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. And so they're not only sending the people back, but they're sending back the, the items that belonged to them, that belonged in the temple, so that worship could take place. Chapter 2 is a list of all of those that were returning and the numbers of people from the different tribes that we see. Chapter 3 is that we see that the altar is set up and that the rebuilding of the temple begins and we read all about that, about how it begins and they, they start doing their thing and there's some excitement in there, much as, as we read a little bit in Nehemiah about the wall. Chapter 4, trouble comes. People don't want it to happen. They didn't want the wall to be built. They didn't want the temple to be built. Those that were enemies of the Jews are still enemies of the Jews. Those that were thrilled that the Jews were taken into captivity and scattered throughout the, the world, they wanted that to happen. They don't want them to go back and have their own world. Okay? They don't want that to take place. And of course, with all of the adversity that we read about the Jewish nation throughout the Bible, we've, we've said this before, we want to be reminded of this, this is Satan doing his best to not allow the prophecies to be fulfilled. Everything was about Satan stopping the Messiah from being born. Okay? And the reason why the Jews have had that hatred forever was because of that. All right? And, and, they, and Satan didn't want the Jews to be a nation, didn't want the Messiah to come, and, and Satan was actively working to stop the line to stop those things from happening. And so we see that they're there and they don't want this to happen. Verses 5 and 6, then, they deal with some of the difficulties. The work on the temple um, is completed and worship begins, we read in those chapters. And that's a pretty cool thing. And, uh, you know, if you haven't read the book of Ezra, I would encourage you to do it. Some really neat stuff in here. Chapter 7, then, we read that Ezra himself is one of the ones that goes in to Jerusalem. Okay, and there's a bunch of names listed and whatnot. And it says in verse 6, This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested, because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. A phrase that we have read, as God has moved a handful of times. And what this is teaching us is that behind all of these things is God. God is the one that is working in the hearts of the king. God is the one that is working in the hearts of the Israelites to go back. God is the one working in the hearts of the people who are providing the materials to build the temple. God's the one that's working in the heart of the people so that they would work on the temple and the wall. God is the one that is doing all of that um, because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. All right? Some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was the seventh year of the king. For on the first of the month he began to go up from Babylon, and on the first, and on the first of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and his ordinances in Israel. That's a pretty important 
verse. Okay? For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and its ordinances in Israel. Now we read in these previous verses that something neat was going on in Ezra's life. And what was going on in Ezra's life? The hand of the Lord was upon him. Okay? The hand of the Lord was upon him. God was working in his life. And then in verse 10, we read, For Ezra set his heart. Okay? Here's the fundamental principle of Christianity that we see all the time. God does his part, and we do our part, and remarkable things are accomplished. God had done some things with Ezra. The hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Okay? The hand of the Lord his God was upon him. It says in verse 9, because the good hand of his God was upon him. But Ezra being a person, a man, just like we are people, just like we are men and women, Ezra had the ability to take all that God had been doing in his life and take the good hand of the Lord that was upon him. And Ezra could have simply blown it off and gone his own way and done his own thing. The God of the universe, all-powerful, able to do anything, obviously. And yet God allows humanity, his people, his children, to make that decision as to whether they're going to respond or not to the prompting of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of them today. Isn't that amazing? You have that power, don't you? And you know you have that power because of why? Why do you know you have the power either to respond to or to blow God off? Why do you know you have that power? Because you've done it. Practical experience. That's exactly right. You've lived it. And the Word of God says so. That's exactly right. Ezra set his heart to study. So, wherever you are today, whatever's going on, God has set his hand upon you in one way or another. And I'm going to say that for a couple reasons. The main reason is, is look, here you are, Sunday morning. You're in a place that teaches and preaches the Word of God. The Gospel is proclaimed here. God has set his hand upon you, and you, in, in at least some measure so far, on this very day, have decided that you would do something about that. You decided to come to this place. There are a lot of other things you could have done today, probably. A lot of other places you could have gone today. A lot of other activities you could have been involved in today. But here you are, because you responded to what it is that God is doing in your life in one way or another. That is what needs to happen in our life over and over and over and over and over again. And one of the reasons why some of you are here today is because just like Ezra, you set your heart to do something. You didn't wake up on Sunday morning and at 9.15, maybe you did, hopefully many of you did not, and, and at 9.15, well, you think we should or shouldn't we today? It was even on Saturday you knew it was going to happen. On Thursday you knew it was going to happen. You set your heart to say, we want to go and be a part of worshiping and learning and fellowship. We've set our heart upon that. Okay? The reason why you will or will not 
read your Bible tomorrow and spend time with God tomorrow and do what we say, do what we call generally devotions tomorrow is, is going to largely depend upon whether you set your heart on that today or not. Whether you anticipate, I'm going to do that tomorrow. I'm going to go ahead and rearrange things and do that tomorrow. Okay? That determines a lot about what's going to happen in your life tomorrow, what you do today with your heart. Are you going to set your heart? Ezra set his heart. Ezra determined that he would study the law of the Lord. And he determined that he would practice what it is that he learned. And then he determined that he would take that and he would teach it to other people. His determination that marked his life was I'm going to study and I'm going to practice and I'm going to share. That's going to mark my life. That's who I want to be. God has put his hand upon me. God has made me one of the chosen. He was part of the nation of Israel. And I'm going to respond to God by saying, this is how I'm going to live my life. I'm going to study what you have to say. And I'm going to practice what it is that I see. And I'm going to share with other people what you have to say. He set his heart to be that kind of a person. Okay? An important verse, and we'll see why that's important here in Nehemiah in just a moment. But it's an incredibly significant verse that we would be a part of in our life as well. God has set his hand upon you. The good hand of the Lord is upon you. What are you doing with that? What are you determining about that? Some of us in this room may just be saying, it is what it is. It's just life. It's just I'm just kind of living my life, going along. Others may be fighting with that. They may be like, like Paul, and, it's, and they understand that it's hard to kick against the goads, and it's a, it's a, it's a tough thing. Others may be saying, you know what? I, I, I want to set my heart to be a part of the Lord. I want to set my heart to walk with Him and to know Him better and to practice what I learn and to share with other people. Where are you? How, what is your approach to the, to the God who has set his hand upon you and has done these great things in your life? We need to think, am I like Ezra? Well, the, it goes on in this particular chapter then. <clears throat> God has at work to do a, 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 some amazing things when it comes to what is going to happen in Jerusalem here, all right? Now, this is the copy of the decree which King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, learned in the words of his commandments to the, of the Lord and his statutes to Israel. Notice a description of Ezra in verse 11 now, okay? He was a man who was learned in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes to Israel. He knew what God wanted him to know. He studied Okay? He set his heart to study, to study, to know. Okay? Artaxerxes, king of the Jews, excuse me, king of kings to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God in heaven, perfect peace. And now I have issued a decree that any of the people of Israel and their priests and the Levites in my kingdom who are willing to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For so much as you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem, according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and to bring the silver and the gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered 
to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem with all the silver and the gold which you will find in the whole providence of Babylon along with the free will offering of the people and of the priests who offered willingly for the house of their God which is in Jerusalem. With this money, therefore, you shall diligently buy bulls and rams and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house of your God which is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, you may do according to the will of your God. Also the utensils which are given for you, to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. The rest of the needs for the house of your God, for which you may have occasion to provide, provide it from the royal treasury. So the king said, not only do I want you to go back, but I want you to go back well equipped. I want to provide. I want to make sure that things are going on in Jerusalem. They're supposed to be going on in Jerusalem. You know what we read in the rest of chapter 7? is God is at work bringing these people back to Jerusalem in some amazing, some amazing ways. In chapters 8, 9, and 10, uh, we read that there are some problems and that they deal with the issues. It's very similar to what we looked at last week with Nehemiah. Once they come back, once they start um, living their life as they're supposed to live their life again in community, once they start worshiping again, they start being convicted about what they're doing. And they open up the, the Bible and they say, this is what it says, this is what you should be doing, this is what you are doing, we need to fix that. And in chapters 8, 9, and 10, you read about that, that that is exactly what happens. All right? So that's kind of a real quick fly-through summary of, of Ezra and what was going on. Then you come to Nehemiah here, and we see that Nehemiah, and we already looked at this, was distressed because the temple was rebuilt, Worship was going on, but there were no walls, okay? It was, uh, it was not a safe place. And so he went back, and a group went with him, and they went back to determine to fix the walls. They did that. They began to challenge the people again, we see in, in Nehemiah. Hey, these things are going on. They ought not to be going on. You need to fix this. And we saw that that's exactly what happens. So we come to where our lesson is today, which is Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. <clears throat> All of the people gathered as one at the square which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel. Bring the book! All the people gather together. We have a temple. We're worshiping. We have walls. We're secure. We're a people again. We're back where we need to be. And I, I want you to notice in verse eight, it's, or in verse 1 of chapter 8, and all the people gathered together as one at the square which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra, they said, Ezra, bring the book. Bring the book. And let's see what it is that God has to say to us today. Bring the book. Bring the book. Well, it's a pretty amazing thing when we think about, and what we're going to read here is going to be just a, a, an awesome, awesome stuff here. Bring the book. Bring the book. So they're talking about what we would call the Bible. It's the Old Testament. It's the Pentateuch at that point is what it amounts to. It's the first five books of the Bible. It was the law that God gave them. This is what you need to know. This is what you need to understand. Okay? Bring the book. Bring the book that you might know 
what it is that life is all about. A moment ago I said, how do you know? The answer that we got were twofold. We know that, that we have this ability to blow God off and respond to him because of our experience and because it's what the Bible says. Okay? The people gathered together finally and they said, bring the book, Ezra. Share with us that great truth. Okay? As people who are called believers, as people that are called followers of the way, as we've been reading in Acts, Christians, believers, how do we know that God is a good God? It's in the book. How do we know that God created the world in seven days? It's in the book. How do we know that there is someone called Satan who is our enemy, who is God's enemy, who is out to counteract all the good things that are going on in the world? It's in the book. How do we know how we should treat our spouses? It's in the book. How do we know how we should act as believers in a community, in a society? It's in the book. How do we know about how to deal with people when they hurt us and offend us and do mean things to us? It's in the book. How do we know about why we should be, why do we know that we should be kind to other people? It's in the book. How do we know that we can be assured of this thing called eternal life? It's in the book. How do we know, how do we know how to be saved so that we can have eternal life? It's in the book. And we could go on for hours with that. It's in the book. And the people said, bring the book. Bring the book. I have told you this story before. I'll tell you it again. Years ago, we, we helped someone smuggle Bibles into Vietnam. Uh, one of my best friends in Iowa. And, and Dan took Bibles into Vietnam, and, and, and we, we sent pew Bibles over in suitcases. And he met with the guy that he was, that he was taking the Bibles to. At that time, it was North Vietnam, you know, obviously, you know, Vietnam. And, and, and he met the guy that, that he was taking those to, and, 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 the, and the guy opened up the Bible and saw those full-size Bibles, and he was only expecting New Testament Bibles. And he saw those full-size Bibles, and the guy just just took that Bible and just wept and said, this is good. This is very good. Because he had in his hand the book. He had the book. You have today in your hand the book. I fear that the book is one of those things that is maybe not as special as it could be or should be to us sometimes. I have on my computer, I counted it, I have 28 different versions of the Bible on my computer. 28. I have 16 different versions of the actual Bible in my office right now. We have a handful at home, obviously. I have one in my car. Uh, I have one on my motorcycle. We're surrounded by this book. 
And I wonder if because we're so, so surrounded by it and we're so used to it that we don't treasure it quite like we ought. Now, I'm not attacking you this morning, and don't misunderstand me, okay? I think that we all think that the Bible is a valuable thing in this room. But do we cherish it as we ought? Bring the book. Let's see what God has to say in the book. Let's, let's read it. Let's, let's find out a little about God. Let's see what God has for us today. Let's learn about me a little bit today. Let's read the book. Bring the book. We cannot possibly identify with people around the world or with people that we are reading about in Ezra or Nehemiah when they, as one, they said, bring the book. Bring the book. There are people in this world who do not have the book in their language still. Kind of amazing to think about that in this world, isn't it? But it's true. Now, a lot less than it used to be, obviously. We're going great guns with that. Some wonderful ministries are in charge of that. But there are people that still today cannot read in their heart language what God has to say to them. Isn't that amazing? And there are people in this world who have the book who cannot stand in a place like this and hold it up and say, look, I have God's word. Look. I can go outside and stand on the highway right now. We could all walk out there and we could hold our Bibles up as the cars go by and we could say, look, we have Bibles and nobody would do anything about that. We can do that. And there are people in this world that cannot. Do you treasure the book? Do you treasure the book? And the people gathered together as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book. Bring the book, Ezra. You're learned. You're learned in the book. You know. You, you studied it. And you know and God's good hand has been upon you. Bring the book. Bring the book. I am, I, am, I am just like everybody else. I read all sorts of different things. I watch all sorts of different things. I involve myself in all sorts of different things. And when we put any of those things above the book, we've blown it. On a regular basis, be in the book. Be in the book. Be in the book. I, I will use me as an example. I almost without fail, get up at ridiculous time in the morning and drive into town to do weird things three times a morning, okay? I don't miss. Partly because I set my mind upon it the night before. This is what I'm going to go do. I'm going to go do these things. Am I that faithful without fail about the book? We need to, we need to ask ourselves some of those questions. Are we, are we as faithful about those certain things as we are about being in the book? Well, Pastor, I've been a Christian a long time, and I pretty much know what the book says. Yes, you probably do. But here's how God wants to communicate with you in a fresh new way using the power of the Holy Spirit in the book. And the other thing I would say about that is you're not as smart as you think you are. 
be in the book. Be in the book. It's going to talk to us differently today than it did then. That's exactly right, because we've matured, we've changed. Cheryl. They did not. They did not. She says that one thing it says about bringing the book is they did not have their own individual copy. They did not. Oh, us pastors long for the day when we were the only ones with the book, and you had to trust exactly what I said. <laughs> I'm just kidding on that. <laughs> You're exactly right. There was just one. They didn't all have it. We all have the book. That's exactly right. Let me read to you some things um, that I tracked down to encourage you a little bit handful of quotes about the Bible. Ignorance of the Bible is ignorance of Jesus. Some of these people you will know, some you won't. That's St. Jerome. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the deceit, the lie of the devil consists of this, that he wishes to make men believe that he can live without God's word. Thus he dangles before man's fantasy a kingdom of faith, of power, of peace, into which only he can enter who consents to the temptations and conceals from men that he, as the devil, is the most unfortunate and unhappy of beings since he is finally and eternally rejected by God. John Wesley said, I know, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on the happy shore. God himself has has, has brought it into one, one place, the book, to teach the way for this very end. He came from heaven. He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book, John Wesley said. George Whitefield said, I began to read the Holy Scriptures upon my knees, laying aside all other books and praying over, if possible, every line and word. This proved meat indeed and drink indeed to my soul. I daily received fresh life, light, and power from above. Once we truly grasp the message of the New Testament, it is impossible to read the Old Testament again without seeing Christ on every page and every story, foreshadowed or anticipated in every event and narrative. The Bible must be read as a whole, beginning with Genesis and ending with Revelation, letting promise and fulfillment guide our expectations for what we will find there. Somebody said this, to the Bible men will return, and why? Because they cannot do without it. Oh, that that would be said of us. Why'd you go back to the book again? I just can't live without it. You're in the book again? I just, I find that I need to be in it. Someone said this, there came a time in my life when I doubted the divinity of the scriptures and I resolved as a lawyer and a judge that I would try the book as I would try anything in the courtroom, taking evidence for and against. It was a long, serious, and profound study, and using the same principles of evidence in this religious matter as I always do in secular matters, I have come to the decision that the Bible is a supernatural book, that it has come from God, and that the only safety for the human race is to follow its teachings. Bring the book. George Mueller said, I saw that 
that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the Word of God and to the meditation on it. What is the food of the inner man? Not prayer, but the Word of God. And not the simple reading of the Word of God so that it only passes through our minds just as water jumps through a pipe, but considering what we read, pondering over it, and applying it to our hearts. Someone else has said, the Scriptures teach us the best way of living, the noblest way of suffering, and the most comfortable way of dying. I like that one a lot. The Scriptures teach us the best way of living, the noblest way of suffering, and the most comfortable way of dying. Everybody lives, everybody suffers, and everybody dies. The book is going to teach you the best way to live, and the noblest way to suffer, and the most comfortable way to die. That's worth knowing, that book, isn't it? Someone else said the book as a Bible, or excuse me, the Bible as a book stands alone. There never was, nor ever will be, another like it. As there is but one sun to enlighten the world naturally, so there is but one book to enlighten the world spiritually. May that book become to each of us the man of our counsel, the guide of our journey, and our support and comfort in life and in death. Charles Spurgeon said this, the more you read the Bible, the more you meditate on it, the more you will be astonished by it. Bring the book. When you read God's Word, you must constantly be saying to yourself, it's talking to me and about me. Maybe that's why we avoid it sometimes. Bring the book. Read the book. All the people, it says in Ezra 8.1, gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. He did what? He read from it from early morning until midday. Let me confess something to you. As a pastor who has read Scripture in front of his people for over 30 years on a regular basis, I will look at chapters that are next up to be read and think, should I read the whole chapter or is it a bit too long? Early morning to late into the day. So you're getting the whole chapter today of whatever we're reading. <laughs> but isn't that exactly how it is in life sometimes? I'm, I'm like a lot of you. Sometimes let's do this thing so we can move on to the next thing. And when we're reading the Word of God, you don't want to have that attitude. Let's let the Word of God do its thing right now. Because, by the way, the only perfect part of our worship service at any given moment is when we're reading the Word of God, right? And that's only if I pronounce the words right. So that doesn't even happen all the time. So he read it from 
in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand and all the people were attentive to the word of the law. God's people were centering upon the proclamation of God's word, our quarterly says. Bring the book. We want to know what it says. Read these words to us. Let us let us know what God has for us. Bring the book. Bring the book. I want you to notice at the very end of this, it says they were attentive to the book of the law. I want to look up a couple of verses that talk about that, okay? Yes, Diane. Um, I heard recently uh, something about Adam and Eve when God walked in the cool of the day with them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It says Adam and Eve were told by God what to do. It says that in the Bible, and that we are too. Yep. That's exactly right. The revelation of God is necessary for real life. Exactly right. So it says that they were attentive to the book of the law. Go to Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. We'll look at a couple of verses that are very familiar to you. Joshua 1 8 is going to be very familiar. It says, this book of the law, the book that we've been talking about, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. That fits right in with many of the quotes that we read from all of those different people. That if you read this and you are careful to do all that is according that is written in it, you will make your way prosperous and you'll have good success. You'll find that your life will go, things will go well with your life. Spiritually with God, you'll be where you need to be. Will you encounter some difficulties? Yeah, but you'll handle them way, way differently than you would without. Romans 10. Verse 17, and this is an incredibly important verse. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. How do you grow in your faith? You hear what God has to say. How do you hear what God has to say? You're in the book. You're in the book. Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now, we could spend a really, really, really long time going through and dissecting and tearing apart and studying and knowing this verse, okay? There's a lot in this verse. But the essence of what this verse says is what? Someone summarize it for me as 
as succinctly as possible. The power of the word. Okay, good. What else? Read it and it'll show you what you're supposed to do. Exactly right. Anything else? Read it and it'll show you exactly. That's exactly right. It says that it is going to, this is not a dry, dusty, ancient manuscript. This book is, what? Why? Because the Holy Spirit wrote it. Exactly right. It's God's Word. It's alive. And it's going to get to the very core of you. And it's going to convict you, and it's going to encourage you, and it's going to teach you, and it's going to show you. They were attentive to the Word of God. Are you attentive to the Word of God? When you're in the Word of God, are you attentive to it? There, there's a couple things we need to do here, obviously. Second Timothy chapter 3, uh, you know, you can hardly talk about the Word of God without looking at this verse eventually. It says, all Scripture, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and reproof, for correction, for training righteousness. Remember how we've broken that down over the years? It's good for telling you what road you ought to be on. And it's good for telling you when you're on the wrong road. And it's good for telling you how to get off the wrong road and get back on the right road. And it's good for telling you how to stay on the right road. That's what the Word of God does. That's what it means when it talks about teaching, reproofing, correcting, and training in righteousness so that you, believer, will be adequate, equipped for every good work. Bring the book. Let's see what he has to say. Go back to Ezra. Uh, excuse me, Nehemiah. I beg your pardon. Nehemiah. Notice what it says here. So he read it. He, he, he read from that book in the presence of all these people. They were attentive to the book. It says in verse 4, Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose. They elevated him so he would be above the people so they could see him and hear him well. It says beside him stood all these people, and I'm not going to read those names. It says that he stood beside all these people, some on the left and some on the right, and these, were, these would have been scribes as well as Ezra. These would have been like Ezra. These would have been the people that were on board with Ezra, and that these would have been some of the people that instructed and taught here in a moment that we're going to read. And it was, it was a group of people standing and saying, we're together in this. Your leaders believe this book matters. Verse 5 says, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. This is why we, read, this is why we stand for the reading of God's word right here, this verse. This is, this is why. It's, it's a tradition that goes back to Ezra. Okay? And why do we do it in effect? What's the issue? Respect. It's a matter of respect. It's an, it's an ask. Now, now, we say that, but obviously here you are reading the Bible. You're sitting. You, know, you read it in all sorts of different ways and whatnot. But the fact of the matter is, is that the Bible ought to be held differently than other books. And, and a public reading of God's Word is one of those unique things, 
And the fact that we stand up for the Word of God is a way of us saying we respect, we honor, we recognize what we're doing here. And we are tracing this back to when God's people came back to Jerusalem and they began to worship once again. And it's kind of a neat thing that we do. And I recognize that there are times when we read Scripture when we don't always stand. But, you know, when we do it, how we do it this morning, we stand for the reading of God's Word. And it's a way to say this is a pretty important activity. This is a pretty important thing. This is the book. Okay? So, although you don't stand every time you read the book, I would encourage you to ponder where your heart is towards your respect for that book. Okay? We live in a world that is so casual. We hardly have respect for anything. Anything. We need to ponder our respect for the book again. Do we respect the book? Are we treating it in a special way? And, you know, those 26 translations on the computer and those 16 books in my office, they lend us toward not respecting it nearly as much as we used to when it was the only one we had. We had a copy of it. We had the book. And it was a treasure because we didn't have multiple ones. It was special and it was unique. Okay? This, is why, this is why some of us get our parents or our grandparents' Bibles and we think they're pretty special. It's the only Bible we ever saw them touch. They only had one. Right? I think this is, this is kind of cool. This was their Bible. Okay? I die, my kids will stand at my bookshelf and say, I don't know, look at them. Which one did Dad use? Okay? It's, it's different in this day and age. Okay? And that's good. I appreciate all the translations. I appreciate all the help. You do too. But we need to understand that that causes us sometimes to lose a little bit of our awe for the book. It still should be an awe-inspiring thing, the book. Okay? One of the books I have in my Bible, I have a, a book that I treasure in my office, um, and it's a Bible from one of the tribes from Papua New Guinea that I was given years ago um, that was one of the Bibles that was translated from a translation team. Um, the fact that there was a group of people that somewhere in the world did not have the Bible and now they do have the Bible and have a copy of one of those. It's kind of cool to think that those people were excited about the book. I get to hold the book finally. Okay, isn't that something? Well, let's read a couple more verses here and then we're going to have to wrap up. So, the people stood up and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered him, Amen and Amen, while he, and while lifting up their hands, then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They worshipped God because they were reading from the book. I want you to notice what it says in verse 8. There's a group of names again in verse 7 there. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating it to give the sense so that they understood the reading. One of the things that is incredibly important is that we explain the words of God. We understand them. And this is why I think that the, the different translations are okay today. I think that you need to understand what they are. I think you need to understand the flaws in many of them. You need to have the, 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 the Bible that is the best translation, the word-for-word -word excellent translation. 
but the other translations can be great tools to help us understand the Bible, to understand it, so that I do what it says, okay? Now, obviously, there's a few that we would reject because they're so liberal or they're taken from a bad perspective that we'd say, we don't want that. But generally speaking, what, what's out there, great tools so that we can understand the book. We can read it and understand the book. Bring the book. You have the book. Look, it's been brought to you already. You have it. What are you going to do with it? Ezra set his heart to study it and to practice it and to tell other people about it. You have the book. What are you doing with it? Willie? Yep, it's, it's Ezra. He read it so that he would practice it to share it. It, was an act, it is an act of worship. It is understanding that these are God's words. This isn't a man's opinion. This, isn't, this, 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 this is God's word. And there's a lot of books out there that can help you understand this thing. But this is the main thing right here. Here it is. The book. Are you reading the book? Are you reading the book? Father, thanks for our time together this morning and for the great encouragement from Ezra and many throughout the Bible and many voices down throughout history about cherishing and clinging to the book, this book that you have given us. Father, we just do thank you so very much that you have given us your word in an easy-to-handle, easy-to-read format. What, uh, what an incredible blessing. What a great time to be alive when it comes to understanding the book. And we thank you for it. Father, give us wisdom and discernment in life using the words that you've given us in the Bible. Convict us that we would set our minds, set our hearts to be in the book, to be men and women of the book. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.